Hey, my name is Jay Warner Wallace, and I'm the author of Cold Case Christianity. I, I gotta tell you, if you're listening to this radio, you know you're in a good place, and I cannot endorse more highly the intellect and the passion of your host. So just enjoy this radio program. Is he a real one? Radio is the real thing. And Veda, thank you so much for doing the most important work of the kingdom. Hello out there, this is Bobby Conway. You're listening to Is He a Real One Radio? And I'm now passing the baton off to my man, Veda. Hello everyone, how are you doing? I am so glad to have you on today. I am your host, Mr. Veda Hedgeman of Is He a Real One Radio. Now, if you are tuning in on YouTube, I wanna wave at you because you can see my face, hello. If you are listening on iHeartRadio, I wanna thank you so much for tuning in. Thank you to all of our subscribers. If you're listening on Spotify, if you're listening on iTunes, if you're listening on the TuneIn app, we wanna welcome you in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We have an amazing guest on today. His name is Dr. Christopher Yuan, and his testimony is incredible. His, uh, his story is incredible, and, and the Lord has really put it on his heart to be a fervent student of God's word and a fervent teacher of God's word. Uh, he has taught at Moody Bible Institute for more than 10 years, and his speaking ministry on faith and sexuality has reached five continents. Now, I will ask him more about his testimony when we start, but before we do, I want y'all to know that a large portion of our discussion will be based off of this book here, Holy Sexuality and the Gospel. Wow. What do y'all think this is about? Holy Sexuality and the gospel. His testimony is incredible. And uh, we're going to talk a little bit about that. So with that said, uh, Dr. Christopher Yuan, thank you so much for joining us. And what would you like to say to further introduce yourself as we get started? Well, well, thanks for having me on, Veda. Uh, it's always good to be with other brothers and other sisters in the Lord as we proclaim the good news to those who need to hear and to encourage each other. So um, it's it's really good to be here, and um, you know, I it's anything that's uh, excellent has to do with my the my excellent God who came to save me mm. you know, from from sin and and from a, a life of being lost to to God. Um, mm. So I guess you know. Let, let me just start with my story. I was not raised in a Christian home. We didn't go to church. My parents didn't own a Bible, but they raised me with very traditional Chinese values. My parents were born in China, came to the U.S. for graduate school, and I wrestled with sexuality from a young age, came across pornography at nine. That was the first time I realized I had these attractions. I never asked for it, uh, and um, I never chose it, but they were there. Well, it wasn't until my early 20s that I believed what the world was telling me, that I am gay. So I told my parents, amazingly, God used that crisis uh, when I told my parents um, to, it, my mom actually initially gave me an ultimatum, you got to choose the family or choose that. Well, for me, this was not a choice, right? That's what the world says. This is not a choice. This is who you are. And I'll get back and I'll get to that later about the who you are part. Mm -hmm. But um, she gave me this ultimatum. And I said, well, if you can't accept me, I've got no other choice but to leave. So I left, went back to, I'm from Chicago, and I was pursuing my doctorate in dentistry in Louisville, Kentucky. 
So I went back to Louisville, devastated my mom. But through that crisis, God brought my mother to faith and then my father. I went wow. the opposite direction. I was doing what all my other friends were doing at that time. You know, if you don't know Christ, live it up. If you don't know, believe in God, then just believe like, you know, this is the only life you have. And so party it up. And I <laughs> right. did that. I, I went to the bars, went to the clubs. And while as a graduate student, I started doing drugs. And, um, and, and you know, the funny thing is I, I was never raised that way. I don't know what whatever raised that way means. But, um, <laughs> I, you know, my, my, I didn't really know many friends that, that did drugs. You know, they, they drank in high school, I guess, you know, maybe smoke a little pot, but nothing, you know, but I never really smoked pot. That, that wasn't my thing. And, but then in dental school, all my friends are doing this and, and it just seemed, you know, appealing and, and uh, we have a way of justifying things, don't we? You know, it's right, like, well, I'm right. not as bad as, as this, you right. know, anything in my yeah. arm or I'm not smoking anything or whatever it is, you know, right. that. I'm doing this, but I'm not as bad as that. And, and then you start doing that and you say, well, I'm not as bad, not as, bad as that. Exactly. <laughs> right. You know, I'm not, you know, I'm only doing drugs on Friday night or Saturday night. I'm not doing, and then, you know, it turns into three days. Well, I'm not doing it every day of the week. Right. Just, you know, sin, I always tell people, you don't have to go looking for sin. Sin finds you. So I, um, I, I started doing drugs again. I was trying to balance. I thought I could be a graduate student by day and a promiscuous drug dealer by night. Well, uh, eventually I was expelled from dental school just three months away from receiving my doctorate. I already got my graduation, uh, my gown. I even sent out the invitations to my graduation and they expelled me and they said, that's it. So I moved from Louisville, Kentucky to Atlanta, Georgia, further away from Chicago. I didn't want to do uh -huh. my parents. And there I kept doing what I knew how to do best, which was have fun, party. And I not only was selling drugs, I actually became a supplier to other dealers in over a dozen states. In addition, it was nothing for me to have multiple anonymous sexual encounters each and every day. Because according to the world, I had it all. Money, mm -hmm. fame, drugs, and sex. I had exchanged the truth of God for a lie. Mm. And again, worshiping and serving the creature rather than the creator, because in my world, I had become God. Right. My parents had no clue that I was doing drugs, but they knew my biggest need was to know the Lord Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. So they tried to reach out to the love of Christ and I wanted nothing to do with it. They came to, they came to visit me one time in Atlanta and I told them to get out. You know, they weren't preaching at me. They weren't throwing the Bible at me. But just the fact that God had so radically transformed their lives that they radiated Christ, that was offensive to me. And I told them to leave. I didn't even give them an opportunity to call up their friends to pick them up. You know, we hear the narrative today that Christian parents who believe in the Bible cannot love their gay children. You have to actually become an unbeliever, become a so-called progressive Christian to love your gay children. I had the exact opposite experience. My parents weren't Christian. They rejected me. It wasn't wow. until followers of Christ that they knew that they could do nothing other than to love me as God loved them. How? Romans 5, while we were weak, while we were still sinners. That still sinners. Still while we were still sinners. Still sinners. Not, not becoming better sort of sinners or kind of had been sinners. No, still sinners. Man. And while we were still his enemies. Imagine that. Come on. Yes, enemies. sir. And God loved us. Doesn't, he doesn't have to. We were his enemies. And that's how my, my parents loved 
me. Wow. Well, want nothing to do with it. Kicked them out. Before my parents left, my dad wanted to give me something. And it was very first Bible. It was all dog-eared. And I told my dad, I don't want your Bible. You know, I don't, I don't even want him to think that there might even be a hope that I actually might read it. My dad, he's a, a bit uh, uh, persistent, you know, a bit stubborn. And he left it on my kitchen counter anyway and walked out the door. As soon as they left, I took my dad's Bible and I threw it in the trash can. I wanted nothing to do with God and certainly nothing to do with the Bible. It was so obvious after that visit that I was totally, completely unreachable and totally hopeless. But my parents committed, and this is important, they committed not to focus upon hopelessness, but upon the promises of God. And along with over a hundred prayer warriors, over a hundred prayer warriors from their church, their Bible study fellowship group, they began to cry out to God for me. My mom began to pray bold, to pray a bold prayer. God, do whatever it takes, whatever it takes to bring this prodigal son to you. In her desperation, she fasted every Monday for seven years and once fasted 39 days on my behalf. She would spend hours every morning in her prayer closet interceding for me, for many others. She knew that it was gonna take nothing short of a miracle and a miracle is exactly what God happened. This miracle came with a bang on my door. Open up my door and on my doorstep were 12 federal drug enforcement agents, Atlanta police, and two big German shepherd dogs. I just received a large shipment of drugs, not my largest, but they confiscated all my money and my drugs and I was charged with the equivalent of 9.1 tons of marijuana. With that amount, I was facing 10 years to life in federal prison. I had started with the bright future among society's finest, and I found myself in the ditch among society's despised in the Atlanta City Detention Center. Mm. So I tried calling home, dreading making that phone call, just thinking, I'm just gonna get, I'm just gonna get yelled at. My mother's first words were, Are you okay? No condemnation, no berating words, just words of unconditional love and grace. The Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 2, verse 4, and I love this passage where it says that it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. Not God's anger, not God's wrath. Wow. It's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. And even on that miserable day, God was pouring out his grace and drawing me to himself through the words of my mother. So I was walking around the cell block and just realizing I've just totally messed up my life. And I passed by this garbage can and I'm like, this is my life. I'm from an upper middle class suburb of Chicago. My dad actually has two doctorates. I was just three months away from receiving my own doctorate. I had it made. But now I found myself among common criminals. Mm. Trash. So I was about to pass by that garbage can, but something on top of the trash caught my eye. I bent over, I picked it up, and it was a Gideon's New Testament. Hmm. I get back to my cell and I opened up that good book. For the first time, I read through the entire gospel of Mark that night. But you know, I was not thinking, this is the word of God. I was not thinking 
that this is going to be the answer to my problems. I actually simply thought that I've got an enormous amount of time on my hands. I got nothing else to do. Might as well read something in front of me. Read something. Yes. (laughs) I can't read it. But as we know, as we know, the word of God is not just on on paper. It's not. What we have in the Bible is the very breath of God. And it is living and powerful and sharper than any double-edged sword, able to cut through the hardest of hearts, exposing my sin, my rebellion, and it wasn't a pretty sight. And I thought things couldn't get worse. I was wrong. I was called to the nurse's office. I was handcuffed. She sat me down and I, I knew, you know how like sometimes you're just like, I, something's not right. Mm-hmm. So the nurse sat me down. She was like, just stumbling with the words. So she finally just took a piece of paper, scribbled something down and slid the piece of paper across the desk to me. I looked down and I saw three letters and a symbol. It read HIV positive. Wow. The days after were dark, and lonely. I was sentenced to six years, definitely much better than 10 years to life that I was facing, but news of my HIV status felt like a death sentence. So one night I was laying in my bed and I was all by myself. I didn't have another cellmate there. I was lying in my bed and just thinking, I've destroyed my life. I was laying there and I look up the cold metal bunk above me. There was graffiti, profanity, gang symbols. Someone had written something else in the corner and it read, if you're bored, read Jeremiah 29, 11. <laughs> well, I know. <laughs> plans that I have for you, mm-hmm. declares the Lord. Mm-hmm. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. Mm. You see, at the most, most hopeless time in my life, the Lord God used the words penned by a prophet thousands of years ago to a rebellious nation in exile to tell me that if God could have a plan for Israel right in exile God could have have a problem plan for me right I had no clue where that plan was going to take me what that was going to look like but God gave me enough faith enough strength to get through that one day and the next and the next so my transformation was gradual. God was convicting me of my dependencies. Obviously drugs, but in a few months, God delivered me from that addiction. God kept bringing to mind other idols, and there was one that I felt like I just couldn't let go of, which was my, and it was my sexuality. So I went to a chaplain, and I asked him his opinion on this, on this topic. I hadn't really told anyone else. I was not open because I was like, I don't know what's going to happen to me if I was. So I just didn't tell anyone, but I decided this chaplain, I'm sure he would keep it confidential. So I opened up to him and I asked him, what does the Bible really say? And to my surprise, Veda, this is so, so surprising. To my surprise, the chaplain told me 
you know, actually, the Bible does not condemn homosexuality. And he wow. even, he walked over to a shelf, took a book, and he said, here, here's a book that explains that view. So put yourself in my shoes. I was like, great. Now Ooh. I have, you know, <laughs> I can have my cake and eat it too. Right. I can, who, who wants to change anyway, right? right? I mean, right. This, is, this is who I am. That's right. what my flesh kept telling me. Right. I was like, great. So I took that book. Man, I was so excited. I took that book and I began reading. But you know what? And this could have been, I guess, my problem or actually my, you know, my, my, the actual real solution. My, my salvation, actually. I mean, not, I mean, salvation from that erroneous teaching. That, as I read that book, I actually had my Bible open next to it. Mm, okay. So as I was reading, and, and this author would be mentioning this verse, that verse, I was like, you know what? I mean, I've been to school. I've, you know, I, I, I know I got to read context. You know, I never took a Bible class. I didn't go to seminary at that time or Bible college, but I knew context is important. So I'm like, okay, he's mentioning this verse. Let me go back to the Bible and actually read like, okay, he's mentioning that verse. So let me see what this person is saying before that, a little edge of chapter. Like, that's not what the Mm. Bible saying i read read i couldn't even finish the book everything was a distortion of the bible so i took that book and i gave it back to the chaplain Mm. meant i turned to the bible alone and i went through every verse every chapter every page of scripture looking for justification i want to find any shred of shred of evidence right. you know the chaplain says god blesses it i'm like okay great let me read that for myself i don't want to just say oh he said it so therefore i believe it i want to read it for myself so i went through the whole i went cover to cover several times i had i had time <laughs> so i i went i went through and i went, and i could not find anything so i was at this turning point either Abandon God in his word, live as a gay man, pursue a monogamous same-sex relationship. You know how? By, by allowing my sexual attractions, this is so important, by allowing my sexual attractions to dictate not only who I was, but also how I lived. Or abandon pursuing a monogamous same-sex relationship. How? By freeing myself from my sexuality, by not allowing my desires to control who I am and live as a follower of Jesus Christ. My decision was clear and obvious. I followed Jesus. As the days and the weeks and the months of abstinence passed, I realized my sexuality is not the core of who I am. You know, I told myself before, God loves me unconditionally. We know that's true, but don't we as sinners like to add to God's truth? I added, so therefore he doesn't want me to change. Similar to people who say, God loves me just the way I am, so leave me alone. But, you know, I realized that unconditional love is not the same thing as unconditional approval of my behavior. Unconditional love is is not the same thing as unconditional approval of my behavior. Wow. My identity should not be defined by my sexuality. My identity shouldn't be grounded in my desires, whether sexual or romantic. My identity is not gay. It is not ex-gay. It is not even heterosexual for that matter. Because my 
identity as a child of the living God must be in Jesus Christ alone. God says, be holy, for I am holy. You know, I thought in the past, and I even kept hearing this message from Christians and from the church when I was not a Christian, that to be a Christian, and if I, you know, identified as gay at that time, to be a Christian, I had to become straight, which then that meant that I had to be attracted to women, that somehow even the more sexually attracted I were to lots and lots and lots of women, the more of a Christian man I would be. <laughs> but I realized that even if I had opposite sex attractions, I would still need to what? Flee temptations. I will still right. need to resist sin. So actually, heterosexuality is not the goal. If we think about this, reading through the whole Bible, God never commands us, be heterosexual for I'm heterosexual. Right. <laughs> Neither did he say, though, be homosexual for I'm homosexual. Both are the wrong paradigm, just the wrong framework. Heterosexuality, yes, it's the correct direction, but it's like trying to shoot a bird with a shotgun. We have to use a laser in our world of 50 shades of gray, actually not 50, infinite shades of gray. We should not be ambiguous as well. Heterosexuality is too broad and we need to be laser sharp focused in a world of confusion. So it's not heterosexuality. So the opposite of homosexuality, this is important. The opposite of homosexuality is not heterosexuality, but the opposite of homosexuality is holiness. As a matter of fact, the opposite of every sin is holiness. I don't need to focus upon whether I'm tempted or whether I'm struggling, but I need to focus upon living a life of holiness and living a life of purity because change is not the absence of temptations. God doesn't promise you, oh, come to Jesus and you'll never be tempted because Jesus was tempted in every way, the book of Hebrew writes, but he's without sin. Temptation is not a sin. Giving in to temptation is. There's a, there's a difference. So change is not the absence of temptations, but change is the spirit-wrought ability to be holy even in the midst of temptations. Because the ultimate issue is not whether I'm struggling or tempted, but the ultimate issue is that I yearn after God in total surrender and complete obedience. So as God was helping to live this life, while in prison, God called me to full-time vocational ministry. And uh, I realized it didn't matter where I was, whether I was in prison or out of prison, because my calling would have remained the same regardless of the location. And with that change of heart, God did another miracle. And he shortened my sentence from six years to three years, which is almost unheard of in the federal system. So with only about a year left of my prison sentence, God did another miracle. Uh, and and um, I, I knew that if I was, you know, he shortened my sentence and I, he called me to full-time ministry and I told my parents, if I'm going to you know, be out of prison, I need to learn more about the Bible than just prison religion. So they actually mailed me an application to Moody Bible Institute. And uh, I began filling it out until I realized I needed references, not just from anybody, but these had to be people who knew me as a Christian for at least one year. Well, do the math. I had some slim pickings in prison. <laughs> but I was able to persuade a prison chaplain, a prison guard, and another prison inmate to write my references to Moody. So amazingly, Moody actually accepted me. I got out of prison July of 2001, and I started the very next month. So Veda, imagine the surprise of my classmates when I told them, or when I answered their question, what did you do this summer? <laughs> <laughs> I graduated from Moody 2005, went on to my master's in exegesis from Wheaton College Graduate School, then received my doctorate of ministry in 2014. And then I had the incredible honor to co-author with my mother, our memoir, which talks about our story more in depth, uh, called Out of a Far Country, 
a gay son's journey to God, a broken mother's search for hope. It's actually in seven different languages. It's used as a textbook in many Christian high schools. And then my newest book, which you just talked about, Holy Sexuality in the Gospel, Sex, Design, Relationship Shaped by God's Grace. Actually, it was just named Book of the Year uh, for Social Issues. And wow. uh, so we're, yeah, we're, it's, we just have to, there's so much confusion, Veda, that we have to bring clarity. And people are just desperate to hear the truth. Man, you said, uh, first of all, you answered like uh, nine of my questions and you're, <laughs> you know, you giving your testimony. So thank you for that. But man, that's, that's so powerful, um, interesting and edifying. You know, I, I'll just kind of piggyback off of uh, what you said a little bit. I mean, I heard about 15 things that I would like to unpack a little bit, but you mentioned, you, you mentioned that like the opposite of homosexuality isn't heterosexuality. And even if your sexual or romantic attractions weren't same sex, but was of the opposite sex, both attractions require denying one's flesh, right? And if our identity is in Christ, opposed to being in our sexuality or our identity, then it'll be easier for us to understand that and live a life that is transformed to the will of God opposed to my will. Now, would you like, I mean, I know you kind of already like to elaborate on that a little bit. And I want people to also hear that I'm not just saying that uh, it's wrong to identify uh, to your same-sex attractions. I'm also saying it's wrong to identify by your opposite-sex attractions. So I do not suggest, you know, people say, oh, I'm a straight Christian. No, you're a Christian. We don't, our desires are just our desires. Don't make that who you are. Mm. And, and again, I, when I'm saying that, that the goal isn't heterosexuality, I'm not saying that marriage is wrong. Absolutely not. But we, can, we have to be able to see that the secular concept of heterosexuality is not equivalent to biblical marriage. Because even though marriage between a man and woman, and that's the only definition that I use, all other definitions of marriage are unbiblical and they're not God's intent. But every, uh, that, that though marriage is, is one form of heterosexual relationship, it's not representative of all heterosexual relationships. So that's why we have to be, I'm just pressing people forward that we have to be much more precise. And that's why I came up with this concept of holy sexuality, which is either chastity in singleness or faithfulness in marriage. Can you, uh, again, I know you just mentioned it, but I love the title of this book, Holy Sexuality. Holy Sexuality. So can you just focus in on that real quick? say the same thing that you just said, but in different words. Can you just walk us through the title of this book? Not just the title of the book, but like the lifestyle. Because if you think about it, if I put my identity in my heterosexuality, or if I put my identity in same-sex attraction, you're saying either one is not holy. Our identity should be in Christ Jesus, Savior of the world, who died for my wicked ways man yeah. i can't go for preach i'm trying not to preach I'm trying to interview you. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> you know but what is holy sexuality yes yes so 
So um, it came up. Uh, so, so actually, if you hold the book up again, you'll see that, that it's, it's actually, there's no color to it other than, you know, the letters are gold, but it's black and white. And actually, that was very intentional, uh, Veda, because we're living in a world of gray, aren't we? I mean, everything is, oh, well, this or this, you know, everything's okay. In God's truth, there's no gray. It's black or white. It is clear. There's clarity in God's truth. And so that's why I wanted to communicate that in the book and also in the cover. So actually, I mean, I didn't explain what my cover is, but it's but my, but the cover was very intentional to communicate in a kind of graphic way what the inside of the book was communicating, that God's truth is black and white. No wiggle room. No wiggle room. And so uh, holy sexuality came out of my frustration with this paradigm. Whenever we talk about sexuality, we think, oh, heterosexuality, I mean, I'm sorry. When we talk about sexuality, human sexuality, we think about the paradigm of what? Heterosexuality, bisexuality, homosexuality. And that's, we pigeonholed ourselves into that category where we, where we cannot almost get ourselves out of it. We can't think outside those categories. First of all, we need to recognize these categories are man-made secular categories. Freud popularized it. It came out of the mid-1800s romantic period of the secular humanist psychologists and psychiatrists. To They weren't just trying to kind of put a name on or define uh, an experience. They were actually creating a new category of personhood. And because of that, we need to reject that. But also, heterosexuality, though, yes, marriage is in that category, but it's heterosexuality is too broad. So therefore, if heterosexuality is the goal, then it would be okay if mm. I then slept with half a dozen women. Or it would be okay because that's considered heterosexuality, right? Or I could be married with, with a woman. Of course, whenever I say marriage, unless I say something else, marriage is, is God's definition, one man, one, one woman. If I was married... And, and so people that might not know this, I'm not married. I, I am single right now. But if I was married and I was cheating on my wife with another mm. woman, that's also considered heterosexuality. And we see a lot of that in the church, unfortunately. A lot of that, that sin, either obvious or on the down low, that's right. sin. Yes, heterosexuality. Or I could also be, as I am now, a single man. But let's just say I had a girlfriend and we're living together. Right. We even have a couple children together. That's also in the church, right? Mm -hmm. That's sin. When we elevate heterosexuality as sin, we can be normalizing heterosexual sin. I mean, I'm sorry, when we normalize, when we lift up heterosexuality as an identity, as that's who you are as the goal, we could be normalizing heterosexual sin. So instead of lifting up heterosexuality, let's take marriage out and say, yes, that is what God blesses. But we also need to realize that says nothing about people like myself who are not married, how should we live? And, and the reality is every person at some point in their life here on earth will be or are single or will be or were single. Even people who aren't married, as in hopefully they'll be married many, many, many decades. But in the later years of life, oftentimes it's one goes home to be the Lord before the other, or leaving the other one behind as what? not married, as single, as a widow, widower. And in that situation, how should we live? So that's why I want to put forth something that was totally, totally inclusive of everyone. How should we live? We need to live. If you're single, be chaste, sexually abstinent. So chastity and singleness or 
faithfulness in marriage. And notice, I don't call them two options. I call them two paths, because I think God puts us on those paths. Singleness is not a choice. You may, you may choose to remain single, but actually the reason why I didn't, can definitively say that singleness is not a choice, because I've yet to meet anyone who was born married. Right? Have you <laughs> met anyone who was born married? We all start out single, and according to Matthew 22, we will all be single in eternity as well. So holy sexuality, chastity, and singleness, faithfulness, and marriage. And I think that really gets very specific to exactly what God is calling us to. It doesn't matter whether you're young or old, whether you're a man or woman, whether you have opposite sex attractions, same sex attractions, or both. We all need to pursue holiness. Hey, question. What, what, do you have a heart out at any particular time so I can know as I'm organizing a conversation? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yep. All right. So I, I love what you said, and I'll just kind of highlight that point about us not lifting up, not lifting up. Like I, I am, am heterosexual, but that is not my identity. I happen to be a married man. But I love what you just said because it's so true, Chris. It's so true. Yeah, and I would even add, uh, you you have heterosexual feelings. I encourage people that these terms heterosexual, homosexual, or even gay, straight, actually should never define people, but they define our attraction. So that helps us to get the mindset. So like I would say, this individual has heterosexual feelings or opposite sex attractions. This person has, then that puts it back away from the realm of, ontology and personhood and essence back mm. rightly we're supposed to be where in experience our attractions our behaviors so i am a man who might experience or have same-sex temptations but mm. my ontology my essence my personhood is not here in experience as n- it should ever be it's never there but it is where it should be and that part is in god is in christ Man, you just, uh, I'm gonna ask you to unpack that a little bit because that's actually where I was going. Yes. So, so what would you say is the difference between me if I said I am gay versus mm-hmm. if I said I am same sex attracted? And why is that distinction important if I was a person who was same sex attracted who wanted to follow Christ? Why is that distinction important? And why is that yeah, important it, for it, listeners it, to hear? Yeah, so let me be. Uh, to answer that question, I want to first um, explain how others who I disagree with would use that term. Okay. okay. So I'm going to kind of first explain the, the other side before I explain my side and my critique of that side. Uh, and I'm not even talking about people who are in same-sex relationships or think that's okay. These are people who say, no, God, uh, I know same-sex relations are sinful, but I would identify or I would say I'm a gay Christian. That's not me. I want to be really clear. I'm not there. But those people would say, you know, they say, you know, when they use gay, they mean, um, they don't mean that they're in a same-sex relationship. They just mean that, that they have these uh, enduring uh, attractions that don't go away. So that's how they would say that. And they, they say that I don't mean anything else other than that. So here's my mm-hmm. critique of that. The problem with that is we, no individual, no person can redefine words. Words have meaning from how, I mean, it's, they develop from culture. I mean, so for example, gay a hundred years ago did not mean what we mean it today. Mm-hmm. It's, it, the, the definition has changed and we have to see words matter. I, I've, you know, as mm. a 
person in ministry, we have, and a person who uses words to equip and encourage and exhort, I have to be aware of every word that I say, because my words hopefully will exhort and encourage and build up and maybe even challenge and maybe even convict, of course, I mean, through the Holy Spirit. Mm. But I also know that my words could possibly, if I use the wrong words, could then confuse. And heaven forbid, I do not want to confuse. Using the term gay carries with it what? Baggage. Yeah. Lots of baggage. And, um, you know, if a person says, well, when I say gay, I don't mean this. Well, every time you use a term gay, you can't then say, I don't mean this. I don't, I mean, that's, that's just too it's repetitive. Too and, yeah. <laughs> right. And unfortunately, gay, yes, though it means that a person might have these uh, attractions. It also has been tied with what we were talking about a little bit of before, ontology. I know that's a big word, but ontology has to do with our person, our essence, personhood. And how do I know this? Because if you were to ask uh, a person who identifies as gay, uh, you know, tell me, you know, you could, you could ask them, maybe it's your friend, maybe it's a relative. Mm-hmm. And say, you know, I, I know what the term gay means, but I just want to hear you use your own words to tell me what you mean by the term gay. What you will not hear from them say is they will not say, oh, when I say gay, I mean, this is what I do. When I say gay, this is what I feel. When I say gay, you know, this, these are my attractions. No, you won't hear that. You know what you, you will hear? When I say gay, I mean, this is who I am. This shift from what to who has created this radically distorted view of personhood. And so sexuality has unfortunately become who we are when it really should be how we are what we do, what we feel. That is what sexuality is. It's not who we are. And we need to bring it back. And why is this so important? I, it's so important because for me, in my journey to Christ, for me to see that what I was doing was sin, I needed to see it first as action, behavior. But when I was mm. living as a gay man, I saw my actions, my behaviors, not as kind of separate from me, but it was all inclusive. Right. So I right. need to separate right. my identity from my yeah. behavior and my attraction. And so once I was able to do that, then God could come in, the Holy Spirit can come in and say, these behaviors and these desires not the temptation, temptation, not sin, but the desires are sinful and we need to flee those desires. We need to put them to death. Can I jump in real quick? So the reason I invited you on, Chris, is because I read your book. I think it's incredible. I saw a bunch of your presentations. I thought it was incredible. And I was like, I would be super honored to have you on to say exactly what you're saying. Mm-hmm. And I won't, is, if, if more people can be informed you know, uh, about the, the, the things that you're saying right now. And we're going to get to some scripture in, in a second. You know, obviously, the more the better. If someone is same-sex attracted or someone just knows someone who's same-sex attracted, regardless, it's helpful for all of us to be more learned as it relates to this. Uh, uh, kind of focus in on someone, whether you're same-sex attracted or not. You know, the things that Christopher is saying will help us in 
anything that we do, that we desire, that we're tempted by, that we might like in our flesh to act in and participate in that is contrary to the will of God, you know? And like, I shouldn't put my identity in in alcohol i'm an alcoholic you know sure sure and i'm not saying like be as tedious in, in everyday language when you say you're an alcoholic but what happens is when we have a struggle that we think we will never ever ever defeat i am an adulterer i'm never going to stop cheating on my wife i'm never going to stop looking at porn i'm never going to stop smoking weed i'm never going to stop doing drugs because this this sin this act this desire that i have that is contrary to the will of god has control over me and i identify as that and god said that you are the head and not the tail mm -hmm. man you got me preaching chris what you doing i'm supposed to be interviewing <laughs> it's so true because i mean what did paul say you know i paul said i was a slave to sin i was a slave to sin and now we're not we're not. I mean, we are actually slaves of Christ in a great way because now he's a good, he's my good Lord. And, but now it's, it's this, you know, it's this paradox where I'm a slave of Christ, but I'm also free in Christ. And so that's this wonderful, but I'm a slave to Christ because I love him so much that I want to serve him in a beautiful, wonderful way. So I'm no longer a slave to sin, but that doesn't mean that you're not going to be tempted. You That's will right. tempted. And I think God does that. Why? So we won't just be these baby Christians. We're going to be mm. strong. We got to fight. I mean, how do we, how do we grow as men or as, as women? We got to fight sometimes. Women, you got to fight to be that godly woman. You got to fight to be that mother who loves Jesus. So it is a fight, but it's so we can be mature and strengthen. So it's, it's key. I mean, I wrote my book, Yes to Address uh, the, the reality of same-sex attractions, but I mean, you really hit the nail on the head for really why I also run it because this is for everyone. Mm -hmm. Sin is our problem. Yes, if, it is. And if you know you're watching right now or listening right now, you're human. That means, guess what? Unfortunately, I'm sorry, you're a sinner <laughs> like me. <laughs> like right. like and me too. So you know, yeah. if if sin is a problem, Jesus is the answer. Jesus. My God. Yeah. Uh, uh, Galatians 5, 1, one of my favorite uh, scriptures, you know, uh, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand yes. firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Mm. Do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. That's okay. Right. Don't submit again to, you know, whatever that is that has a hold of you. Now, now, going back to something that you said, you know, you mentioned that you were given a book that that was making an argument that it is okay to act on same-sex attractions and the and the bible's okay with it now one of the I, I do have a few of those arguments with me i'd love to hear you respond to biblically so just just for starters you know when people say well the bible doesn't really address homosexuality specifically before we even get to certain scriptures, how, how do you respond to that? Because that's often something that they will say, you know, they say, Jesus will go ahead. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So uh, there's different ways. So like you were just about to say, so Jesus never said anything. Um, yes. Jesus never specifically mentioned that, but silence is. So if, if you know anything about logical fallacies, there's a logical fallacy of argument from silence. 
um, you need to be very, very careful about uh, saying anything just because someone didn't say something. Because if we're using that same logic, we could then say, you know, if Jesus didn't say anything about homosexuality, then he's okay with it. Well, then note in the Bible, Jesus never said anything about bestiality. Mm -hmm. Jesus never said anything about incest. Does that make it right? Well, of course not. Of course it doesn't. Uh, so is that, that silence is it. So when people say, well, the Bible doesn't really address homosexuality, there's sometimes a, a couple ways. There's one uh, where people, and this is a, a very, um, it's, it's, not, it's a extremely weak argument um, that, that is sometimes made where people say, well, the word homosexual uh, is, didn't enter the, the English Bible until the early 1900s. Yeah, like 1800, something. Right, right. And, and, and like the word didn't come into the English language until the mid 1800s. So that's true. It is true that the word homosexual did not enter the English translations, you know, later. And it was, I, I think it's the RSV, the Revised Standard Version, that it came in. Uh, and, and it wasn't in, entered into the English language until the uh, later eight, 1800s. So yes, that's true. The problem people then make, I mean, so this is, this is something that, you know, this could be a, a high school student making this mistake. If you've gone to college, if you've gone to, you know, if you've done any critical thinking, you would know that just because there's an absence of a word somewhere does not mean that the concept was not addressed. So this is a very uh, kind of sophomoric uh, argument, uh, but it's a main argument from that, that you often still hear people making. Uh, but so the concept, so then people will say, well, then the concept of homosexuality isn't addressed. And what they usually mean is uh, the, con the concept of not just homosexuality, but the concept of a loving monogamous same-sex relationship wasn't addressed in the Bible. So how that's problematic, one thing is it actually reveals that this person does not hold to the doctrine of inspiration, that somehow the Bible is just written by a bunch of human beings, by a bunch of men. They do not realize that actually the Bible was written, yes, it was written by men, but they were moved by the Holy yeah. Spirit. Amen. Moved by the Holy Spirit to record his word. That's the doctrine of inspiration. And so it's one thing to say that the biblical writer was ignorant, which I don't hold to, but it's one thing to say that, but it's a whole thing entirely to say that God was ignorant and did not understand this concept. Um, so, you know, but having that, as we'll go through, I, I really think that all these passages actually are really pointing back to Leviticus. Leviticus 18.22 and 20.13, that's the key one. And there's really no wiggle room around, you know, well, well, you know, it's not talking about loving. It's, it's just it's talking about simply a man sleeping with another man. And that's not God's will. Before we get the, uh, maybe we can close on that. Uh, before we get there, I, ca I kind of feel like that leads well to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 19. And how do you think that this passage relates to, to the conversation of sexuality biblically? So, so uh, Matthew 19 verses uh, three through six, uh, this is a question in Jesus responding. Yep. And the Bible says, I'm reading from the ESV, and Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Jesus answered, have you not read 
that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So what does this passage have to do with the conversation of sexuality and biblical sexuality, holy sexuality? What, how, how does this passage help us get some clarity on that? Yeah, so if, you know, if, if you're watching this and listening or listening to this, if you want to have what I see as the best hermeneutic to address biblical sexuality or to um, uh, uh, have these conversations with others who thinks that same-sex relationships are okay, uh, before you, you even get to these six passages, know Matthew 19 and actually also Mark 10. These are parallel passages, you know, basically telling the same story just from different perspectives uh, where Jesus, I mean, Veda, I think this is this is key. We have to know, but I, I'm not saying that somehow the red letters in the Bible are more important. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that, you know, just because Jesus said it, it's, 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 it's extra or something. Right, right. Uh, no, the word of God is the word of God. So what Moses says is equivalent to what, what you know, the gospels say. And, and, it's, and what Paul says, it's, it's all the same. However, those who are these people who are gay affirming, they sometimes treat Jesus' words as more special. So I'm going to be kind of just playing their game, even though I don't really agree with them. But so going to Jesus' words in Matthew 19, uh, it is so important. So kind of building the context here, Matthew 19, and, and actually Mark 10 at the beginning of that chapter as well, where uh, he's, uh, Jesus is questioned by the Pharisees about divorce. Because at that time, there's this debate about, is it okay to divorce a woman for any reason? Because at that time, some, some rabbis were saying, oh, if, if your wife burns your uh, dinner, you can yeah. divorce like for real like that yeah yeah (laughs) crazy but others were like no 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 that's that's really wrong and you you know he there has to be grave sin or something like that you know like uh you know uh, she cheats on you or he cheats on you something like that uh but it's it's amazing because you know jesus says have you not read and 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 i'm just going to flip over to mark 10 because i love how jesus actually you know in mark 10 it says you know you know it's like because of the hardness of your heart. I mean, he's calling them out, you know? <laughs> right. He's not mincing his words at all. He's like, he, they, he, he, he didn't have to do all that. He didn't have to do all that. He didn't. So, so he then says uh, in Matthew 19, he says, have you not read, which is basically, you know, come on, for real. You know, I mean, we can read between the lines. Jesus is really calling them out, right? I mean, have you not read is not like a nice way to say something. It's like, and he also knows that they read. When, of course. Like he, exactly. right. <laughs> yeah, Pharisees, they, they can memorize it. So he, he knows that they read, but he's, he's, he's meaning something else. You know, have, have you not understood this? In other words, he's saying, uh, you know, where he says that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother. So, you know, just like you read. So what we need to realize is where is that from? What is Jesus pulling from? He's going back to Genesis. And this is important because what the Pharisees were doing was they're relying on Leviticus and Deuteronomy. Why? Because that's where the laws come in. That's where the thou shalt not and et cetera. And there's just hundreds of these laws that these Pharisees were doing. Guess what? And, and, and actually the, the Pharisees were, were thinking that, that, you know, 
Jesus was going to go back to Leviticus or Deuteronomy and pull stuff out and, and kind of, you know, go tit for tat. And Jesus was like, you know what? I'm not playing your game. I'm going to go to something that usurps or trumps, you know, in their mind. Of course, we don't think it does. But I mean, they, you know, they have to see, they believe that, you know, even before the law was, we have creation. So Jesus was like, I'm going way back. I'm going like past Mosaic law, okay? I mean, even before, right. I'm going back to Genesis. Wow, says, right. In the beginning. Yeah. So this is all really intentional. Jesus is like, I, I ain't playing your game. I'm going back over the Mosaic right. law. I'm going back to the beginning. And he says, in the beginning, creator made the male and female, the two ship come, et cetera. So where do you get that? So we know first, you know, it's obvious that therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. That's from Genesis 2.24. And then, but that's, that's, Jesus doesn't just quote that. He's, it says, from the beginning, he made them male and female. Where's that from? So, I mean, we, we can see why he went to Genesis 24, because that's about marriage. That's when Adam and Eve, you know, God took, take, took, uh, takes the side from Adam. Selah in Hebrew isn't rib, but it's actually side. Take the side from Adam. And then uh, he puts the two into one, the, you know, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, and two become one. So that's why it's so amazing. It's, it's the Adam, human, God taking the side, one becoming two, and then in marriage, it's the two becoming one. It's this beautiful image of one becoming two, two becoming one, and that's all in Genesis 2. So it's obvious why Jesus went back to Genesis 2, because that's about marriage, the first marriage. But then he adds, he kind of throws this in, you know, it says that the creator made them male and female. From the beginning, made, made them male and female. Where is that? That comes from not Genesis 2, but from Genesis 1. Yeah. Where like it's many people would not connect Genesis one with marriage, but actually, it's very much about. I mean, it's it. Jesus is clearly connecting that because Genesis one it says so. God and this is actually from Genesis one twenty seven. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them, which is so amazing. And sometimes we miss this. And I'm throwing this in. I don't want to get too off, but he's, but, but Jesus is not only saying that this is what marriage is, but he's connecting marriage with the imago dei. That's so powerful. So not only is anything outside of marriage between a man and woman sin is actually destroying the very image of God. But Jesus did not even have to go to Genesis 1 because he's being asked about divorce. What does male and female have to do with divorce? And this is where some liberal interpreters get it really wrong because they say Jesus is only being asked about divorce and we should not read anything more into it. That's a huge mistake because tell me since when is Jesus constrained by the questioner? Never. If a person Never. asks a question, Jesus can just go whatever. Like for example, should we pay, pay taxes, right? He's like, yeah. that's not even the most important question. Give to Caesar what Caesar and give to God what, what is God's. So that's, that's not, it's a bad answer to say that Jesus is only to ask about divorce and we need to not look. No, Jesus, when he's asked about divorce, you know what he's going to do? He's saying, I'm going to school you on marriage. I'm not only going to tell you why divorce is wrong, but I'm going to tell you what marriage is. marriage is. What marriage is. Marriage oh is. So therefore, he said in the beginning, created made the male and female and the two shall become one flesh. The only way to understand what Jesus is doing is Jesus is saying male and female is essential to marriage. Yeah, and, 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 I, and I love that 
answer, Chris, because Jesus, he, he, he wanted to answer that question. He could have just did uh, verse six, where he says, there are no longer two, but one flesh, where therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. If it was only about when two people get married, whoever those two people are, God has joined them together, let no man separate. But that's not what he said. Before he even said that, he laid the foundation of, like you said, what marriage is. Have you not read that he who created them, that God had created them from the beginning, he, God created them male and female. And God said, therefore, a man, I'm sorry. And Jesus said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother. So not even just he created them male and female. Yeah. It even goes back to he shall leave his father, yeah. male, and his mother male, and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh it's like he went out of his way to say this is the foundation of what marriage is and now that i have said this to you folks who clearly don't understand let me tell y'all about um if marriage should be divorced the answer is what god has joined together let no man separate my goodness Yes, right. That's so good. And uh, so I, I think there's so much richness. You know, it's Jesus was connecting these really key passages that that hadn't been done before, Genesis 2 and Genesis 1. And Paul even did that as well. So it's key to understand marriage in light of Genesis 2 and in light of Genesis 1. Now, I'd like to hear your response to the whole one flesh unions being mm. in different parts of scripture. So in some of the scriptures that we've both read or just freely kind of mentioned in, in, in our soliloquies, we mentioned that the Bible talks about, you know, being one flesh. Now, some of the revisionists, and by the way, if you're listening and watching, when I say revisionists, I, I'm speaking about uh, people who will who will claim that they're teaching from the bible but but using the bible in a what i believe is a heretical way to say that the holy bible supports acting on same-sex attraction you know and it's a perversion of 